Let us pray. So, Father, may these 40 days truly be a time of setting our face toward you, of seeking your will and being cleansed from sin. Lord, may today be the continuation of a right start to a holy Lent. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to see all of you here. And again, thank all of, thanks to all of you who came out Ash Wednesday. We had wonderful attendance at our four services. and It was such a, a wonderful, long, um, but wonderful day. Um, long day for the clergy starting at 6.30, and, but that's okay. It was a wonderful day. And it um, was so good to have Father Justin Clemente here last Sunday as Tammy, Eliana, and I were up in Hagerstown. And I hope you were blessed by his ministry. He is a wonderful priest and pastor and church planter, a good friend. I'm very grateful for the partnership that God is giving us, not only with him, but with New Creation Church in Hagerstown. And you probably figured out shortly after you started preaching that he's a pretty low-energy, sedate kind of a guy. (laughs) But um, I'm so glad that we had that opportunity and look forward to doing that again sometime in the future. I would invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them, taking a break from Ephesians for the season of Lent and through Easter, um, focusing on our Gospel reading this morning. As you're well aware already, today is the first Sunday of Lent, and as I mentioned at the start of this morning's service, Lent reminds us of our sinfulness, of our need for a Savior, reminds us of our need for God's grace daily. It's a time to more fully serve the Lord only. This theme that God has laid on my heart as one of our areas of focus for the coming year as a church, that's really what Lent is about. Asking God to clean our heart houses, in a sense, so that we can more fully and without hindrance serve Him. Lent is also a time to reflect on our utter dependence on God for salvation and eternal life, but not only for these things. Because we are utterly dependent upon God for life and breath, for the sustenance of our very lives in every, in every respect. Now that is not a thought that is popular in much of our culture today. The idea that we are dependent upon God for every respect of life and sustenance. People reject the idea of being dependent on anyone or anything. And yet at the same time, if you observe carefully, you will see people trusting in all kinds of things and in other people other than God for the very things which are found only in and through God and a living relationship with Jesus Christ. This idea that's so prevalent in our culture of rugged American individualism, brothers and sisters, that is not a biblical concept in any way. Because we are dependent upon God, and God, by His design, has called us to live in community where we, in Christ, are dependent and supportive of one another. A few years ago, there was an article by David Brooks in the New York Times based on a study that uh, was done, or that, um, that Google has done, that was completed in 2008. And in that study, Google did a tracing of every word used in books published between 1500 and 2008. 
So now you can type a word search into this database and discover how often words have been used over the centuries. And based on the data, Brooks wrote a column in the New York Times, which he calls the story of the last half century. The first part of the story is the rise of this extreme individualism in the past 50 years. And as they studied words, it was clear that individualistic words and phrases increasingly in our vocabulary have overshadowed communal words and phrases. For instance, the following individualistic words have been used more frequently. Self, personalized, the phrases I come first, I can do it myself. And this is in contrast to the following communal words which actually have diminished in their usage in writing. Community, share, band together, common good. What's interesting is the second part of the story also is that words related to certain aspects of moral virtue have also declined in usage, particularly modesty, humbleness, discipline, honesty, patience, faith, wisdom, and even the words evil. So what it tells us is that this idea of self-sufficiency, this idea, this false idea, this false construct of being self-sufficient and independent has become much more profound and um, widespread in our culture. And the reality is this sort of thing is even a temptation for Christians, in part because this way of thinking that is ungodly and unscriptural is all around us. And also for both us at times and for the culture at large, because the converse of any false sense of independence or individualism is ultimately surrender and fidelity to God. So it's either I can do my own thing, I can handle it myself, or I need to surrender to God. I need to be faithful and trust in the Lord. Every year, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is the gospel reading for the first Sunday in Lent. And this year, the lectionary for Sundays, the scripture readings appointed for Sundays are a three-year cycle. So this is year C. So this year, it was the account from St. Luke's gospel. Next year, it will be St. Matthew's. The following year, St. Mark, and then back to Luke. That's the way, Luke. That's the way the rotation works. But in this emphasis on starting Lent, the first thing with Luke's gospel, we have an emphasis on 40 days. Jesus' 40 days of fasting and our parallel in Lent of a period of penitence and fasting for 40 days. And as Father Jed described in much more detail so well in his sermon on Ash Wednesday, this also um, correlates with the fast of Moses and of Elijah in the Old Testament as well. Now, for Jesus, this period of 40 days in the wilderness follows immediately on the heels of his baptism in the Jordan, where the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Jesus' baptism, followed by the events in the wilderness, mark the inauguration of his public ministry as Messiah. Now, hear me, and I know I touch on this fairly often, but it's important for us to be mindful of this. This was the inauguration or the launch of his public ministry as Messiah. Jesus, for all time and eternity, past, present, and future, 
is the eternal son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He did not become God the son or God the Messiah at his baptism. This was a public identification and recognition of who he is and of this ministry he would have as he was in, lived on earth as a man, yet fully God. But in the wilderness, Jesus experienced three specific types of temptations. And these three temptations and their setting are unique to Jesus and his position as God, the Son, and the Messiah. The temptations, in other words, that Satan confronted him with really applied to him as that eternal being. And what Satan asked of Jesus to tempt him is not repeatable or directly applicable to us. However, as New Testament scholar Daryl Bach points out in his excellent commentary on the Gospel of Luke, the issues, hear this, the issues of the tests are fundamental ones that can be repeated for anyone. The issues are the same kinds of issues that represent the temptations that you and I face as well. And all of them relate to not trusting God. So I want to take the remainder of our time to look in some detail at these three temptations with which Satan confronted Jesus. However, before we do that, there is one essential piece to all of this that I think is critical for our understanding. Look at verse 1 of Luke chapter 4 with me. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And his withdrawal into the wilderness was a direct result of obedience to the Spirit's leading. What Jesus went through in the wilderness was in accord with the will of his father. So keep that in mind as we go through this. So now let's take some time to look at the three temptations which Satan put before Jesus and make application for our lives. The first temptation that Jesus was confronted with was to not trust in God's care. To not trust in God's care. Look at verses three through four with me. The devil said to him, if you are, if you are the son of God, Command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. To be clear, Satan is well aware that Jesus is indeed the eternal Son of God. So when Satan says, If you are, he is not in any way denying who Jesus is. But rather, he is in his temptation attempting to exploit Jesus' status. It is a temptation for Jesus to use his power, the power that is his, in a way that is apart from the will of his Father to serve his own selfish ends. As Joel Green in his wonderful commentary on Luke says, he, referring to Satan, thus reinterprets son of God to mean the opposite of faithful obedience and agency on God's behalf. So the devil, in a sense, was suggesting that God was abandoning Jesus and that he had better look back. Jesus had better look to act, excuse me, had better act to look out for his own needs. Do you see what's going on here? Tie it to the individualism that we see, that we've talked about as I started this sermon. And Satan's design here is to bring disunity in the very nature of the Godhead, the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
himself. For Jesus to turn the stone into bread would be for him to operate in disunity, to operate independent of God the Father. And it would represent a challenge to God the Father's faithful protection of him. The very protection of God who led him, remember, who led him into the desert. Satan confronts you and me with very similar types of temptations, especially when we face adversity, especially adversity through and because of our obedience and faithfulness to God. What? Yes. Yes. Being faithful and obedient to God can and very well will lead to adversity and hardship in this life at times. That is the testimony of the church down through the centuries from the New Testament all the way to the present. People who are known to history, believers who are known to history, and believers known only to God who suffered because of fidelity to the gospel and obedience to Christ. One example of this from the early church is the Bishop Polycarp. He was Bishop of Smyrna. We commemorated his martyrdom on February 23rd, which was a week and a half ago on Wednesday. And during that Wednesday morning Eucharist, I read a lengthy excerpt from the martyrdom of Polycarp, which is a document um, from the early sub-apostolic period of the church. We know that Polycarp was directly discipled by the Apostle John. But I want to read a much shorter excerpt from that this morning as we think about about this, and that we can indeed suffer because of fidelity to Christ and the gospel. But when the magistrate persisted and said, swear the oath, and I will release you, revile Christ, Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But as he, the magistrate, continued to insist saying, swear by the genius of Caesar, which means swear that Caesar is divine, that Caesar is a god. Polycarp answered, if you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar as you request and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. Now, if you want to learn the doctrine of Christianity, name a day and give me a hearing. The proconsul said, persuade the people. But Polycarp said, You I might have considered worthy of a reply, for we have been taught to pay proper respect to rulers and authorities appointed by God as long as it does us no harm. But as for these, I do not think they are worthy that I should have to defend myself before them. So the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, call for them, for the repentance from better to worse is a change impossible for us. But it is is a noble thing to change from that which is evil to righteousness. Then he said to him again, I will have you consumed by fire, since you despise the wild beasts, unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, you threaten with a fire that burns only briefly, and after just a little while is extinguished. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. As he spoke these and many other words, he was inspired with courage and joy, and his face was filled with grace, so that not only did he not collapse in fright at these things which were said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished. 
And we know from history that Polycarp was indeed burned at the stake that very day. Polycarp could have very easily taken things into his own hands. In the midst of the temptation that we face to take things into our own hands through the means of our own flawed and fleeting human strength and power. Brothers and sisters, we must remember just like that long line of faithful Christians through the centuries that our life is in God and that is much more than physical comfort. We do not live by bread alone. God is our source and supply and this transcends and is far beyond mere physical sustenance. We are called to do God's will and to not focus on providing for ourselves and looking out for number one, which the world around us would tell us is the paramount concern. The question is, can we, will we truly grow to ever more fully trust in God's care for every need? And the answer is we can do this by God's grace and power at work in us. The second temptation was the temptation to false worship. Look at verses five through eight. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Here we find Jesus enabled probably by a vision to see a great expanse of territory. And here Satan functions like a sleazy salesman. In the wilderness, where in a temporal sense, Jesus has nothing Satan says to him, look at what can be yours. You can have it all. If you will just look to me, it reminds me of the old game show. I know it's had several iterations down through the years. Let's make a deal. And I remember the one, the original one with Monty Hall. Some of you are old enough to remember that. Some will raise your hands and some will hide your hands so we know how old you are. (laughs) But if you remember, well, you have this. But if you give that back to me, you can have what's behind the curtain. Remember that? You never knew what was behind the curtain. Let's make a deal. And that's how Satan operates, like a cheap, sleazy salesman. But so much more is at stake. And Satan here, and Satan in every case, hear me, makes a great oversell. Do you understand that? Satan always oversells. Because what he promises will not Fulfill what he says it will. Joy and peace and satisfaction and wealth and all of the things he promises. In the end, through seeking him, leave us hollow and empty. And if we can remember that when we are tempted, it will give us great strength to see the temptation for what it is. Brothers and sisters, Satan always always, always oversells. He always tempts with what in the end is not in his power to give. He offers things which he doesn't have the authority to give, things that are only found through God. 
Satan's temptation to Jesus is to offer him the seizure of earthly power. Something that is an attempt to break the son's relationship with the father once again. And to quote Joel Green again, what Jesus has offered then is a shabby substitute for the divine sonship that is his by birth. Because in the end, in reality, all of what Satan is promising is Christ and is under his authority through the Father ultimately anyway. And in the same way, Satan wants to rob you and me of our birthright, of that which is ours through Christ, by luring us with the hollow, empty stuff of this world, which will never satisfy. Things which then exact from us worship and fidelity, which really belong to God and to Him alone. One of the resources that has been recommended to you on the list that the staff put together for Lent is this little book called The Selfless Way of Christ. I have quoted from this book at times previously in sermons. This is a book, it's a short book, but this is a book every Christian should read. It's by Henry Nowen. It's entitled The Selfless Way of Christ, Downward Mobility and the Spiritual Life. But Nowen, much of what Nowen writes in this book deals with or is based on Christ's temptations in the wilderness. But I want to read a quote now and I'll read another one a little later on my sermon related to this idea of worshiping something other than God. Nowen says this, Surrounded by so much power, it is very difficult to avoid surrendering to the temptation to seek power like everyone else. But the ministry of our ministry is that we are called to serve not with our power, but with our powerlessness. It is through powerlessness that we can enter into solidarity with our fellow human beings, form a community with the weak, and thus reveal the healing, guiding, and sustaining mercy of God. We are called to speak to people not where they have it together, but where they are aware of their pain. Not where they are in control, but where they are trembling and insecure. Not where they are self-assured and assertive, but where they dare to doubt and raise hard questions. In short, not where they live in the illusion of immortality, but where they are ready to face their broken, mortal, and fragile humanity. As followers of Christ, we are sent into the world naked, vulnerable, and weak, and thus we can reach our fellow human beings in their pain and agony and reveal to them the power of God's love and empower them with the power of God's spirit. Jesus responded to the temptation of power with the words, you must worship the Lord your God and serve God alone. These words remind us that only undivided attention to God can make a powerless ministry possible. As long as we divide our time and energy between God and others, we will forget that service outside of God becomes self-seeking. And self-seeking service leads to manipulation and manipulation to power games and power games to violence and violence to destruction, even when it falls under the name of ministry. Lust for power. Lust for the stuff of this world leads to worship of those things those things which in the end are dead, empty idols. Third, we have the temptation to test God's protection. Look at verses 9 through 12. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This was a test of Jesus' trust in God's care. Go ahead, jump. God will protect you. For Jesus to have done this is not trust, but godless presumption. Because this was an artificially and recklessly created need. This is unbelief masquerading as faith. And Jesus sees the temptation for what it really is. The underlying inference here posed by Satan is maybe, just maybe, God won't protect you. And as Daryl Bach says, demanding miraculous protection where it is not needed is not faith or loyalty, it is sin. Nowen calls this the temptation to be spectacular, to quote Nowen again. This third temptation which Jesus faced and which we face, as well as the temptation to be spectacular. The devil took Jesus to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For the scripture says he will put his angels in charge and they will support you in their hands in case you hurt your foot against the stone. It is the temptation to force God to respond to the unusual, the sensational, the extraordinary, the unheard of, and then to force people to believe. The temptation to do something spectacular has not lessened since Jesus' day. We have come to believe that a service is valuable when many people attend. A protest or demonstration is worthwhile when television cameras are present. A study group is worth having when many people want to be a part of it. And a church is successful when many desire to become members. Truth in our culture has become so largely determined by statistics that it is easy for us to truly believe that the number of people who listen, watch, or attend is a measure of the quality of that which is presented. Can we trust God? Can we trust in his protection even when it means standing alone? Even when it means standing in the wilderness? Or will we fall into the trap of seeking the accolades of people and becoming attention seekers? This happens tragically all the time in Christian circles, not just in the world around us. Listen to some people as they speak, as they preach. Listen to the words and the pronouns they use. I, me, mine. Listen to the anecdotes and the story they, stories they tell. And far too often how it is all about them and how great their ministry is or how wonderful they are or how powerful they are. Instead of pointing to Christ and worship of the living God. This kind of thinking, whether it's in the church or the world, is rooted in pride, the pride of life. It is rooted in a sense of self-sufficiency that is false. Brothers and sisters, our sustenance, our life, our very being comes through God. Acts 17, 28 reminds us, in him we live and move and have our being. 
for we are indeed his offspring. Every one of these temptations we've talked about today at its root is designed to separate us from God who is our life. And what they promise in exchange is a cheap, hollow shell. Not even a substitute, but a cheap, hollow shell with nothing in it. Lent, these 40 days, is a time to draw close to God. To ask God to make us more fully to serve him only. To serve him alone. To recognize our sin and our brokenness and our daily need and dependence upon God for every aspect of life. Every aspect of life, right down to our very next breath. It is a time to ask God by his spirit as we seek him, as we set aside even some good things to set our focus more fully on God in this season. It's a time to ask God to search the crevices and the corners of our hearts to show us to shine his light on anything that is not of him so that we can repent. We can lay that hollow, empty, false thing down those false things and allow him and invite him to fill that space. So we are filled ever more with his presence and his power. It's a time to reflect upon what Christ had to do in coming to earth to win for us eternal life and restore relationship with the Father. And it's a time to remember that we can, by God's grace and power, drawing our life and sustenance from him, we can, by God, not in our own strength, not by sucking up and gritting and bearing our teeth, but by God's power, we can remain strong and even stand alone when necessary in the face of temptation. The first scripture verse I ever memorized when I first came to the Lord in my high school age youth group was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now, I learned it in the King James because that's what you did back in those days. But I want to read 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and 14 to you as I conclude this morning. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from all which tries to set itself up in the place of God in our lives. The temptations we face are no different than the temptations that believers down through the ages, Old and New Testament have faced. They're common to man. They're common to human beings. But God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted above that which we are able, but he, and this is it, trusting in his grace and his power, allowing him to fill us more fully with his presence, recognizing our brokenness and depending upon him, he will make way to escape that we may be able to endure it that we may be able to be raised up and used and more fully consecrated for the glory of his name. Let us pray. Father, may this season of Lent be a time 
a sober thankfulness. Recognizing who we are, who we were apart from Christ, and what you have done on our behalf. Lord, cleanse us. Lord, sanctify us that we would serve you only. And Lord, in your grace, show us those areas we need to surrender more fully to you so that we may worship you in the beauty of holiness and truth and that we may be the people you are calling us to be formed into the image of your son for your power and glory and honor and by your grace. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.